0: Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey,
1: kids, comics!
2: Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger.
0: Here are your hosts,
2: Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. You make yourself comfortable. Oh, ah, right? yeah. You have been sat there for 10, 20 minutes and now you decide to and make yourself you, comfortable. And
0: then you moved into podcast mode and elbowed me. me out of the way. I
2: did not elbow you out of the way. I merely have very broad shoulders and need room. The, so do I. And no, you don't. <laughs> You're right, I can't because <laughs> of you. Do you want me to move up a bit? Would no, that make you more comfortable? fine. Okay, right. Should have done this offer. <laughs> it's not very professional. Then as again, as we're as not as professional. That's why it's honour. That's yeah, that's very true. Hello, lovelies. Welcome to three, episode three yeah. of Nothing But the Nineties, which I think is what we've stolen off Michael. He's not demanded royalties. Okay. That's good of him. So we'll just keep going until he <laughs> does. Just keep going, yeah. Till his lawyers rock up. <laughs> Uh, email section of the show Chris Franklin emailed in Clone Saga a go-go hello Leylands no now the show's going to end again no no don't panic which may be the most sensible or intelligible thing anyone said to you all day Andy I think your French sounds a bit German <laughs> it's better than my Irish sounding Scottish You both kind of sound the same they do yeah. don't they yeah <laughs> <laughs> don't tell them that <laughs> they have enough reasons to hate us as for the giant fan Peter built it reminds me of a company that operates out of nearby Lexington Kentucky they make large industrial sized fans and their company name is wait for it Big Ass Fans <laughs> I wonder if Raylan Givens has ever been there
0: Big Ass Fans because
2: he hangs around Lexington Kentucky doesn't he Kentucky Le- Lexington Kentucky around that place that I can't pronounce. I totally agree with your praise of Ross Andrew, continues Chris. Andrew did a lot of DC covers in the late 70s and early 80s, while well, he worked as both artist and editor though, and he made a huge impression on me. His slightly skewed perspective style has always appealed to me. His work is very kinetic and is instantly recognisable, while still maintaining a clear house style. His early work on Wonder Woman, Suicide Squad and Metal Men is also very nice. Speaking of house styles, the Spider-Man figure on the cover of issue 146 was repurposed for an endless array of spy- merchandise in the mid-1970s through the 90s. It made it into Marvel's Style Guide stock image file along with many other lifted images from cover and splash pages. Looking forward to the conclusion and clone McFighty. McFighty Stein. Well I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Because I had a ball with that last episode of the Clone Saga, didn't I? A- oh, just while well you think that that storyline has been wrapped up, here comes a retcon. I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Our next email is from Derek Crap. Hello, Chris, Cindy, and Andrew. Oh, well, this is about Supermates. All this cross-promotion is paying off. I've listened to Andrew before via Views from the Long Box and started listening to Supermates via the Rob kelly Alan Brennett episode. After that, I checked out a few episodes of Hey Kids Comics. While we don't have the same sources for the Amazing Spider-Man TV series, we did come to similar conclusions and findings. Thought Chris and Andrew might get a kick out of this. And uh, he's included a link to his History of Comics on Film Part 50, which is com. And uh, it was very good. He, he, you yeah, know, he, he kind of ripped the Spider-Man TV shows bits as well. <laughs> also, thanks for mentioning the age of TV heroes. Keep up the good work, Derek. Uh, and history of comics on film is a blogspot. And the Fan Holes podcast is at at blogspot.com. Feel free to check them out. We're nothing if not big on the pimpage. Our next email is Patrick Kukurin talking about Seven Soldiers see hey. you just had to wait a little bit
0: I, I did yeah maybe, for all those
2: people to catch up yeah well maybe what they were doing was they were saving all three of them Until and listening
0: to them we were knee deep in two projects later yeah that's right. well, yeah, I mean, yeah, okay, so yeah. totally how I would do it let the hype die down yeah
2: Seven Soldiers. Hello, fellas. Long time no email. You two are still causing me to stop mid-run and laugh uncontrollably. Although I do enjoy the amazing recaps done by both Leyland men, it is the moments of snark or general buffoonery that pop out during discussions. Most times it's not even in front of other runners or people on my route who watch me stop and be laughing abruptly. They look upon me in fear. Fellas, fear. So you, in a second-hand roundabout manner, you not only entertain me, but instill fear in random fear in Metro Detroit. I think we should have that on the poster (laughs) how many posters have we got well the poster lots of people have lots of different quotes from people so it's a very big poster yeah so sufficiently silly and whatever the other ones were I've forgotten it's all quotes and a little tiny us compressed yeah a little tiny little little, wee little (laughs) little puppet men at the bottom and then at the bottom of it instills fear into people in the metro Detroit area
0: (laughs) those those Detroit people must hate silliness
2: (laughs) how can you hate silliness
0: in detroit the world
2: is inherently silly the people in charge are inherently silly day-to-day life is inherently silly when you have
0: a jla as crap as the detroit jla
2: (laughs) (laughs) so what you're saying is detroit had a crap jla yeah yeah. so because of that they have an allergy to silliness not even robocop can redeem that team <laughs> Robocop being on that GLA may have actually been pretty cool. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed your recap and analysis of Seven Soldiers, continues Patrick. I run hot or cold on Morrison myself. Sometimes I'm blown away by his complex story structure or his exploration of narrative structure. Seven soldiers and super come to mind. Other times I'm left scratching my noggin when I gaze upon his Lewis Carroll rabbit holes of storytelling, as in the case of Final Crisis. You both cued me into many themes I've forgotten or missed in each of the miniseries. I did not even consider the bullet here as a commentary on Western youth-obsessed culture or a critique of the comics industry. Before your show, it was the weakest of the storylines for me, but after listening and rereading it this week, it is second only to the -the over-the-top monster smashing of Frankenstein in my silly ranking. Well, thank you very much. We're glad we were able to enable you to go back and reappraise something that you've read before and dismissed. And that's high praise indeed. Mm -hmm. We appreciate that. I, I was much more interested in the first reading of the event in the manner of which Morrison chose to tell the story. I thought his use of a quasi-Roshiman effect was bold in the form of mini-series comics. He presented no unreliable narrator, as is often the case in stories told from differing perspectives. Instead, it was this interesting team without being together team perspective. It is a method that would be right at home in another genre of fiction, spy or espionage. A team of operatives working in connection but with no contact with other members would be rife for alias, double agents, codes and dead man's drops. I'm sorry this was so long, but what are your thoughts on his upcoming Multiversity Series? Great show, as always, Patrick Kukoran. Well, we ain't read it yet, Patrick. But I'm hyped. Michael's very excited. We've been waiting years for this. As you might think. Well, when was it announced that he was doing it? Around
0: Final Crisis coming out.
2: So is that, what, ninety nine 2000 Or is it No, Final
0: Crisis, that was 2008. Was it? Yeah. Right. So, around about then. Right. I'm just reading Final Crisis again. I'm sure. It's my build-up to, to a multiverse, which started, ooh, back with Animal Man. It's I, all interconnected. I've just forgotten everything we covered on the show, so it's all just back, one again. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you should go back and listen to him again. I should, yeah. But you should totally listen to yourself, like a raving Ego manic. I, I love listening to myself. You, you've you never listened to much of the single episode of the show? Uh, the ones I, I edited Apart from the ones that you edit.
0: I don't need to listen. Oddly, I didn't listen to
2: the ones that you edited. Yeah, sure.
0: Because you were
2: too late giving them to me, so I had no chance. These
0: last few.
2: These last few what? Episodes. Oh, right. I did. Okay. Our next email is from Archie Williams, who is... A new emailer.
0: I swear that theme changes every time. Because I don't remember what it is. We should have a consistent one. We should. Every new listener has their own theme change.
2: Yes, that would be awesome. I'd love to have a theme change. <laughs> mine would be what would mine be would mine be jolly and happy or would it be dum, 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 I, dum, I don't know da, da, I think it kind of speaks more towards da, da.
1: Otis than Vader <laughs> <laughs> thanks love <laughs> <laughs> what so far?
2: <laughs> despite those cat like reflexes Archie says clan Leyland hello there I'm just a simple man who's from the weird massive land called North America it is pretty weird it is yeah I didn't think I'd gain anything from listening to two Brits talk comics, but I was thankfully wrong about that. I've been an avid listener for a couple of years. I like the banter between you two. I'm also joining the House of Glittering Delights as well. It's a palace, dude. (laughs) I think I'm also the only person who liked Michael look at the Metal Gear Solid. There you go. Somebody who likes the Metal Gear Solid episodes. Maybe my episode was his gateway into our show. Maybe. Yours is one of those. It was not appreciated in its release time. Yeah. But many, many years from now... It'll have a cult following. It'll have a cult following. When people look back on this whole podcasting craze, <laughs> fad, and mock it, they'll the find fun that one episode... podcast has died. Yeah, once, once we all got bored of it and moved on to doing something else. Yeah. They will find that one episode... <laughs> and, and it, it was will two. be praised. Two episodes. Yeah, yeah. And they will praise them as being the pinnacle... A comic
0: podcaster well, achievement that was going to be my first back house, outhouse of glittering delights.
2: <laughs> Michael has considered putting up a rival show the outhouse of glittering yeah, delights.
0: Yeah. Now you've cut me off, I'm just living in the shed. <laughs> Every, every night I look up at the palace and sing a Disney musical. And
2: <laughs> a shooting star goes from behind it and I'm up there in all my refinery and you're down in the outhouse slopping out the pig swill.
0: Can I live in the palace? It's the outhouse for me. <laughs> I-
2: You damn near just killed your dad. <laughs> Live. Oh, I can take your palace over. <laughs> the Palace of Glitter and Delights is my other show on Two True Freaks. You should go and listen to it. It's very good, he said, not at all modestly. Anyway, Archie's email. It would suck to see you all end, but most good things eventually do. Michael, good luck with the education. Sincerely, Ryle Williams, not Archie Williams. I'm confused! It doesn't take much. No, no it really doesn't. P.S. Yes, I got nothing to say about Civil War, despite the tagline being Civil War. I got to the end of that when it was coming out and wondered why these heroes weren't actually talking about the SHRA instead of beating the crap out of each other. <laughs> I liked that email because it, it, it made me cry with laughter. <laughs> Thank you for emailing in actually, It's very much appreciated. Our next email is from Ian McGregor. Are you a clone? Am I a clone? Hello, Andrew and Michael. Your trilogy of episodes about the 70s clone saga was great, which we never get bored of hearing. (laughs) Oh, we don't. Quite frankly. Your analysis of the issues was interesting and very funny. You poked so many holes in this storyline, I'm starting to wonder if I had just as many inconsistencies and problems as the 90s clone saga. And I'm saying that as someone who liked both sagas, despite their many problems. Here's a few points that I have about your shows. Back when I was ten, I read through all of the Amazing Spider-Man essentials up to the Marv Wolfman run. I remember loving this story, except for the ending of Amazing Spider-Man 150. My young mind spent about an hour going through the fight between Spider-Man and his clone, trying to trace the artwork to figure out for myself which one had come out alive. After concluding that I couldn't tell, I eagerly proceeded to Amazing Spider-Man 150 to see whether the Peter who got out of the explosion was the original or the clone. I suffered through a boring Spider-Slayer story to find out, and was cheated! Instead of reading the results, Peter decided he was the real Peter Parker. There was some BS explanation about love and throw away the results. As a ten-year-old, I actually shouted at Peter, "You idiot!" and stormed away from the comic for a few days. <laughs> I love it when they give you that reaction as a kid. This is yeah, dreadful. But... And throw it away. I did that with one comic we read this week, didn't I? <laughs> this is awful.
0: Absolutely true story. So we had to sell a tape it back together to yeah. read it. <laughs> and gnashed
2: it to pieces. Number two, I agree that Jerry Conway was terrible about how Peter's spider sense worked. His spider sense not working when the Miles Warren was watching him because it can work out who is a hero or villain would sure have come in useful with the green goblin or the hobgoblin. Even Conway's idea about the spider sense not working on Peter's friends doesn't work, since the spider sense went off when Peter was going into his apartment and Murray Jane was there. Maybe it warns him when he's about to get late. Why would it warn you of that?
1: <laughs>
2: alert, alert, <Our> Aunt is <laughs> about to enter your room. <laughs> Oh dear, well, alert, alert, you are about to enter a room as Dr. Octopus is about to enter Aunt May. <laughs> uh... That would be something I would want my spider sense to warn me off. <laughs> <laughs> Dan Slot wishes it didn't work then. Septogenarian sex. Aww. That's not really what you want to see, is it? Remember if a scientist ever asks you for DNA, don't do it, cheers Ian McGregor. Michael, if you want to have your mind blown, read Scarlet Spider Unlimited number one. The issue retconned the retcons from the 80s. It involves My- Miles Warren working for the high evolutionary creator, superior race of human-animal hybrids, and has a cult about the jackal where the animal-human hybrids worship a giant golden idol of the jackal. Read it. You'll have a blast. Sounds <laughs> like, a, like a hoot. It's a hoot and a half. The final email for tonight is from the mighty Mark Taylor. So mighty his name is in uppercase. In uppercase, yes. We met Mark in London, he's a we lovely, did. lovely man. Mm-hmm. I made him spend money.
0: Yes. Yes. He bought me a drink, uh, of course I like him.
2: <laughs> well, I didn't make him do that, I, I made him buy the box set for UFO. Ah, right, okay. And uh, he's thoroughly enjoying well, it. I don't benefit from that, though. No, no, but you benefited from him buying us a pint. Which we greatly appreciated, did did we not? Especially on that warm sun, I dare. Hello, Layla's. Hello, Mark. Just been catching up on the last few weeks of shows. Thank you for the shout-outs and the recounting of our adventure in London Comic Con. Or rather, your adventure, mine, was spent in the queue. (laughs) Yes, but we saved you from that, Mark. Either way, fun was indeed had in the end, and it was an absolute pleasure to meet you guys in person. As you said in the podcast, the events were not actually real until you recounted them on the show, so I'm glad to have finally been released from the nether sphere and given corporeal form. Loving the show as ever and pleased that now Michael has decided on his college plans for the year, Hey Kids will carry on in some form. I may hold you to that whole naming the show Hey Kids Comics 1980 thing. Oh, we're totally doing that, man. (laughs) Episode 201 is totally going to be Hey Kids Comics 1980. I... Will be played by Roger Davis. Okay. He will replace the me. Right. And you can be played by one of those losers who replaced Bo and Luke on the Dukes of Hazard. Okay. So we will get repli- we'll be replaced <laughs> by inferior
0: actors. We'll, we'll be replaced by younger, better-looking people. Yeah, yeah. Well, not in
2: my case. <laughs> <laughs> Pete Dool was better-looking. Oh, we can do. You could be Barry Van Dyke, and I'll be <laughs> Ken McCord. Okay. That works better, given that it's Her Kids Comics 1980. Mm-hmm. Will you be Benedict originally? Uh, yeah. And I'll be Richard Hatch. Yeah. I think that totally that really works. I think that'll be fantastic. Any chance of covering Saga, if you haven't already? I know it's pretty much currently the hipster's choice of comic book, and it's almost getting a bit boring as to how recommended and lauded it is, but that's because it simply is very good indeed. Would be interested in your take on it if you have one. We keep batting around, Mark, this idea, don't we? Of doing another Hair hey Kids comic spotlight on Brian K. Vaughan. It's not really one of those series you can pick out an issue, though. We'd have to do issue number one or just pick one at random or something yeah. like that. But we have thought about doing a Brian K. Vaughan issue. Uh, we are going to be covering something either next... Not next, not next, right, obviously. After the 90s... The next event. Yeah, no, it's not an event. We've got two weeks in between the 90s finishing... Right. ...and what we're doing for episode 200. Okay. And we are going to be covering one of Image's finest in one of those shows. I think it's every bit as good as Saga, but it doesn't get anywhere near the critical or commercial acclaim. So I'm, we're going to be covering that.
0: I'm trying to guess what it is
2: now. Well, well you guess what it is yet. <laughs> oh, I can't make <laughs> jokes. <I do laughs> know, can
0: <laughs> I? Roll Rolls off the menu now.
2: <laughs> uh, so we're, we're, Saga's gestating if we do the Brian K Vaughan show, but we're definitely going to be covering a image classic. Current classic, not an old one. Otherwise, thank you for covering Forever Evil, Mark continues. It's a public service that you could provide to read and try and make sense of these big crossovers. They always seem so alluring and earth-shattering, but eventually the best they seem to muster is a, eh, it was all right. I made a start with Forever Evil, but the protracted release schedule, DC's belligerent turn to grimness and unpleasantness, and various website and solicitations giving away plot points in advance, caused me to drift away before the end. Glad to have your show to put it into perspective. You read these things so I don't have to. (laughs) Public service. I also enjoyed the Seven Soldiers shows, despite not having ever heard of this miniseries before, even though I'm close to Michael and Andrew my overall opinion of Grant Morrison. This is the perfect opportunity for Andy to do his Grant Morrison impression <laughs> here, by the way. Go and pick Seven Soldiers up. Yeah, I'd actually recommend that to people. People yeah. who don't normally like Grant Morrison stuff, I recommend Seven Soldiers. Mm. I mean, maybe not people who absolutely don't like him. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, people that are, are open to going, all right, I'll give this one a go, Seven Soldiers. I certainly enjoyed it. It was very pleasant. Uh, Mark continues, do you think you do the Invisibles or Zenith in these mysterious unassigned slots? I'd be up for either one of those. Well, one of them, yeah, well, one of them's picked for the image show.
0: Right, so we're not doing Invisibles or Zenith.
2: I'm not saying not. Right, oh, 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 you were answering what we're doing in the slot. Yeah, those two slots have now been filled. Right. And then it's 200. And then we're doing that thing that we're going to keep under our hat for the minute. And then then it's wide open then, because we've got 40 dog shows to fill in. Yeah. So uh, if you want to do Zenith, I'll do Zenith. I want to do. I don't, we couldn't do the Invisibles, could we?
0: We could do the Odd Issue.
2: Well, we couldn't do like 75 of them.
0: Oh no, there's a few one offs.
2: Is there? Yeah. I thought you'd have picked that for the 90s Vertigo show, but you didn't.
0: Uh, I would have done, because I had the issue in mind.
2: Well, we can do it if you want. Well, it's not recorded yet. I've already picked them now. All right, okay. I don't like the ones we picked. Alright, fair enough. Anyway, keep up the good work, says Mark, after we interrupted his email. Thank you very much, Mark. It was a pleasure and a privilege to meet you. I very much enjoyed it. And uh, with a bit of luck, if the stars align properly, we will be able to do it again one day. And that's it. The mailbag sack is empty. Mm -hmm. Come on, email in. So we'll plug somebody's show and be right back.
3: This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened the short box showcase. But then again, may have about a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen, and I'm Emily, who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead, Tintin, Black Lightning, White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners and the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra Seven, this Ultraman Jack, and this Ultraman Taro, and this Ultraman Leo, and this is U- of how they spoke at length. This Continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Short Box Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family.
2: If the 90s are known for two things, it's drastic shakeups of a character's look and enhanced covers. Enhanced covers started as a way for Marvel's Ron Perlman to milk even more money out of the rapidly growing Speculator Marketplace, but not even he could foresee its ultimate destination. Initially, the covers simply featured different coloured inks, such as Spider-Man Issue 1, which came in silver and gold versions, but they rapidly expanded across the many different comics companies and in many different versions. Batman had glow-in-the-dark covers to coincide with Dead Man making an appearance. Superman had embossed covers to signify his return from the dead. Spider-Man had hologram covers to celebrate his 30th birthday. The Punisher debuted a new title with an embossed and die-cut cover. Robin spun off into his own miniseries with lenticular covers and holograms. Eclipso, the darkness within, came with a purple gemstone attached to the cover, which made it a bitch to store in the long boxes. As each company tried to outdo each other, things started getting even more ridiculous. Superman coming with a color form, design-your-own-cover issue was at least a fun gimmick, but the Avengers came with an enhanced cover every three months for no discernible reason. An Amazing Spider-Man issue 400 was an outright flop, featuring an embossed cover that was illegible. Malibu Comics even published a comic called Protectors, with a bullet hole through it. This was also the era of the Variant cover. Variants, by and large, were simply cheaper alternatives to the more expensive enhanced covers, giving the readers not impressed by gold foil embossed glow-in-the-dark smell-the-fart covers an opportunity to buy these comics for the usual price. Image Comics, however, took this one step further, when Gen 13 Issue 1 featured no less than 13 different covers, a move that fully symbolised 90s excess, but variant covers are still very popular today. But all of this pithiness is to ignore the fact that enhanced covers were cool. Hell, an awful lot of them are still cool. To this day, if I dig out a 90s comic with an enhanced cover, my wife or daughter will comment on it, or Michael will sit and stroke it lovingly. Heck, people must still think they're cool because the comics companies are still doing them. To this end, this week we've picked three comics with enhanced covers. The other 90s element, again not limited to just the 90s, but certainly exploited to the fullest in that decade, was changing the look of a character for a storyline, sometimes for a one-issue gimmick, other times for an extended long-form story. Again, this week's comics all follow this pattern. One such book was Web of Spider-Man issue 100, cover dated May 1993. Web of Spider-Man was an odd duck in the Spider-Man publishing schedule. Debuting on Christmas Day 1984, Web of was the lesser Spider-Man book pretty much through its entire existence. Brought into being simply because Marvel team-up had been cancelled, Web of became the third in continuity Spider-Man title. But it was a title that was rudderless almost from the beginning. Despite a strong opening issue, the book meandered, having an almost rotating creative team for its first two years of publishing. David Michelini and Peter David provided the best stories at this time, but they didn't seem to last longer than eight consecutive issues. In the late 1980s, Jerry Conway returned to Marvel and then to Spider-Man, and basically repeated what he'd done with Batman and Detective Comics, making Spectacular Spider-Man and Web Of the same book. But the only time Web Of was ever in the main Spider-Man Comics League sales-wise was when it was a part of a title-wide crossover. In its nearly 130 issue run, not one significant storyline occurred in Web of after issue one. I'd given up on Web of, dropping the boot with issue 21 and only coming back for crossover or Peter David penned issues. So the upshot of this is I have never read the issue we are about to cover. I have it in my collection simply because I saw it in the pound bin at a comic show and... Yes, I admit, I thought it looked cool with its foil cover. To be fair, it looks like Marvel simply dusted off the background for Spectacular Spider-Man issue 200 and simply changed the colour from silver to green. The part that isn't foil is Spider-Man, who is swinging and vaguely McFarlane-esque pose, wearing all-new, all-during spider armour. Alex Saviak, who drew the cover, is a pretty decent artist, but this armour looks utter Bobbins. It looks more like a padded quilt than any armour I've ever seen. And it has extensions over the knees and elbows that don't move when he does. It makes the Azrael Batman armour look almost plausible. Almost. What do you think of the giant-sized 100th issue of Web of Spider-Man? I quite like it. Do you like it? Really? Or do you just think it's cool? I just like
0: the armour the, um, Spider-Man. Really? And it was your fault, to be honest. It's always my fault. Ever since you got me that armored Spider-Man toy as a little kid, I didn't—I didn't know if it
2: was from a story. It was just a pretty cool, badass Spider-Man. <laughs> do you think the toy came first, that, and then they just incorporated think... it into a story? Or right, maybe that's like spider mobile It was just. I oh, know. do you think it was they had the license to make Spider-Man toys? Let's make an armored one because it's been in a comic. Yeah, like what? how many battle damaged voice, do you see? Yeah, I don't wonder which came first. Alright, fair enough. So you you like it then? Yeah, just and only because of that. Only because of the toy. Because it's quite implausible. Oh yeah, yeah, isn't it? My Enemy's Enemy Part 4 Total War was written by Terry Kavanagh with art by Saviak and Joseph Rubenstein. Thrown right into the middle of the action, Spider-Man is fighting Dragon Man, the Super Adaptoid, Dreadnought and the Vanisher for some reason pertaining to the ruling of the New York mobs. Again, it's also something to do with the foreigner and seemingly behind-the-scenes manipulating events is Richard Fisk, the Kingpin's son, a.k.a. the Blood Rose. However, another heir to the Kingpin's legacy, going under the name Gauntlet, because he was a glove, brilliant, arrives in New York via boat to take on the traitor who betrayed him in the first place. Elsewhere, somebody who's been raiding Spawn's laundry basket arrives and beats on some carjackers. He goes under the name Nightwatch and he's after Gauntlet because he's stolen his, er, Gauntlet. At ESU, Peter Parker decides he needs an edge against all these bad guys and makes some armour. Really, it's as simple as that. He just makes armour. Through various plot contrivances, Blood Rose and the Gauntlet end up in a mansion. Blood Rose is attacked by Dragon Man, the Super Adaptoid, and Dreadnought, but because what this story needed was more characters, Blood Rose manages to turn those four against themselves, but is then attacked by the Vanisher, Thermite, Eel, Plant Man, and Tangle. Spider-Man then arrives in his natty armour that one would think would prove pivotal to the plot in some way, but I'll save you some time, little listener, and tell you that it doesn't. Nothing Spider-Man does in this fight could not have been done if he wasn't wearing his armour, and this seems proven after seven pages when it's melted off in by thermite Lots more fight happens between the various different parties and we learn that Gauntlet is also Richard Fisk. We know this because Spider-Man tells us that he looks like an older, weathered Richard Fisk. Despite the fact that Richard Fisk and Gauntlet, going under the name Alfredo, look nothing alike. Spider-Man takes out all the villains without too much trouble without his armor. Fisk and not Fisk who thinks he's Fisk has a conversation about how Alfredo wasn't really Richard Fisk, but a brainwashed tool who would aid the real Richard Fisk in taking down the Kingpin's operation, and I'm left wondering what all this had to do with the gang war. Nightwatch appears because Gauntlet still has his gauntlets and apparently accessorising his really hard work, and then they fight. Bloodrose takes aim at Gauntlet but hits Nightwatch and Gauntlet beats on him as Bloodrose climbs a tree. Spider-Man stops him from taking his shot, Nightwatch rips the gauntlet off Gauntlet's arm thanks to his cape, which seems to be alive, and Spider-Man unmasks Blood Rose and is surprised as Richard Fisk is supposed to be dead. Spider-Man turns them all over to the police. In an enigmatic epilogue, the mansion belonged to eccentric hermit Mr. Greycrest, who seems to be in thrall of a bunch of supervillains, and Nightwatch passes out in an alley next to a newspaper about adrenaline experiments. The end. I'm gonna rant about this! What have you got?
0: I I couldn't Like with all comics, I will give them all the benefit of the doubt. Even when for the past few weeks you've been saying, Oh I'm gonna be covering the worst comic without covered ever <laughs> So you know But shoot my load I I did kinda of give up on it after a while. It it was really bad. It's painful, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. I had to force myself to get through it. It's it's a piece of crap. <laughs>
2: yeah. Quite frankly. It's polished, at least. It's a polished turd, because of the nice shiny cover. <laughs> yeah. But it's a turd. Yeah. And it smells like a turd. Yeah. And I, I will have no part of it. Yeah, it had have pretty turdy bad guys as well. It, it, the synopsis was long, because this comic is the very definition of full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And believe us, nothing happens. <laughs> yeah. ...of import in this comic. Absolutely nothing. The story, such as it is... ...isn't wrapped up... ...thanks to the enigmatic ending. Spider-Man does not seem to have a clue what's going on... ...but to his credit... ...you don't give a damn. And we don't know what's going on either. No, but because he doesn't care... ...we don't <laughs> care... ...so that's all okay then. I mean, and there's lots of characters... ...having a big old fight for no reason... ...other than it fills up a double-sized issue. The much-ballyhooed Spidey armour... ...serves no purpose... And he's forgotten about quickly. And this barely qualifies as a Spider-Man story. So irrelevant is he to the plot. There is nothing of substance here at all. The art by Alex Saviok, who's normally a very competent artist, is bland and uninspired. The inking's very black and heavy-handed. It's a thoroughly insipid issue. And Michael's right. After I did the notes for this, I, I said this is probably the worst comic we've covered in the history of the show. You know, Maximum Carnage was far too bloated for its own good, mm-hmm. but I will concede that it had redeeming features yeah. at various points in that story. Normally the ones that were written by Tom DeFalco or James DeMatteis, they at least had something to them. Not many, but some. Ghost Rider number one was at least entertaining <laughs> in its stupidity. Yeah, But this this was just boring would it—it was. It's possible that it makes more sense if you've read the other three parts of the story. I'll give you that. But at the very least, the final part of a storyline should be exciting. I actually thought this was a real chore to re- I think I was—I was, I don't think I was halfway through it when I was going. How much longer is this going on for? Yeah. And it was just a chore. I just didn't care. The Richard Fist stuff seemed really convoluted and Spider-Man's reaction mirrored my own. Who gives a Leave it to the police. And there's a part of me that would like to think that the ending was a nice piece of reflexive wit on behalf of the writer. It was an admission that Spider-Man was irrelevant in his own comic and that the events of the issue meant nothing to him and so he didn't really care what was going on. Which was the writer nodding to us that this was an irrelevant issue yeah. in the life of Spider-Man. But I think that would be giving him too much credit. <laughs> Do you? Yeah. Because Terry Kavanagh's stuff was the weakest part of the Clone Saga. And I think this is the only other issue of his I've ever read. Lackluster seems to be his middle name. <laughs> Doesn't it? It's. uh, I mean, I can't even be asked going back through this and doing a page-by-page recap. So, I'll just ask, why did all the characters know how to turn up at the mansion? Whose mansion is it? Who is this Mr. Greycrest? Why should we care?
0: Uh, There's a Greycrest symbol in the sky. Who is he? He's... uh, I I don't know. I've read
2: tons of issues with Spider-Man. I've never heard of this guy. I
0: assumed he was a criminal guy.
2: Is he important to the story? No, he only shows up in the epilogue so did not I d I didn't I didn't get that. Why is not Fisk who thinks he's Fisk called Gauntlet? Because he wears a bloody glove. Is he the, he's the guy with the eye patch, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. Yeah. How lame is that? <laughs> I have stolen somebody's glove, so I will call myself Gauntlet.
0: They, they were all pretty crap. I can control plants, so I'm plant man. Yeah,
2: well plant man's a crappy villain anyway.
0: I can control fire so I'm thermite. It's
2: yeah, every single one of them was awful. Why is he still called Gauntlet at the end if the police take his glove off him?
0: I don't know, is he, is he not. <laughs> is his ch-
2: name not changed to Armless? stupid <laughs>
0: Stupido.
2: Yeah. That would work. Who was Nightwatch? Oh, forget, it. I don't, I don't this care. this was a
0: spawn tie in.
2: Really? Yeah. It was a Sp- an unofficial spawn crossover. <laughs> yeah. That's what it was. He did look a lot like spawn. It would be ironic if uh, Todd McFarlane had sued Marvel. <laughs> for his uh, his creation. I don't blame the 90s for this. It's a script that thinks by throwing a lot of characters in, it will seem action-packed. And by not answering questions, it will seem profound. It's just a bad comic. Mm. But it would have been a bad comic in any era. Not just the 90s. You know, it would have stunk in any decade. Yeah. It was just crap. On every conceivable lesson. Level. Adverts, Fire in the Skies based on a true story. I think I've seen that. I vaguely recall having seen that. It's a fill. In case you're in... Oh! Hot Comics! What hot comics have we got this week? Image. Brigade. You were limited to two copies of Brigade. That must have been hot. Mm, must have been. Cyberforce. You were limited to one copy. That must have been hot. Cyberforce, yes. And the fact that you can find them all in the 50p bins now yeah, <laughs> is irrelevant. Image. A, a spank mag... Sorry, a swimsuit edition. <laughs> Max number one, you were limited to two. Operation Urban Storm. (laughs) What a pretentious name. (laughs) Savage Dragon one through three, you were limited to one copy. Savage Dragon versus Megaton. Is he like
0: a Transformer?
2: Yeah, Savage Dragon versus, versus Transformers. Spawn, you were limited to two copies for issues five through seven and eight and nine. And then Wildcats and all that other drill. I really don't care. Marvel, issue 360 of the Avengers. You were only limited to one. Is that a special issue? I don't know. Or has it just got a silly cover? Cable number one, new series. You're limited to five copies of that. <laughs> That's not as hot. No, no, no. The very fact that you could buy five <laughs> copies should have set some alarm bells tingling, but apparently not. Secret Defenders, Spider-Man limit, Unlimited, issue one you're limited to five copies but you have to buy it by the 1st of the 5th 1993. After that, you're limited to two copies. I think I'm pretty SOL then. Mm, Spider-Man Unlimited is a hot book. (laughs) Do you know there wasn't one single good issue of Spider-Man Unlimited? The first one sounded fun. It was Maximum Carnage. Oh, right. That was the first part.
0: Well, it was fun then.
2: It was, yeah. Uncanny X-Men 300. Again, if you buy it by a certain time. There are hot cards. Valiant. What other hot comics are there? Aliens Platinum. It's $25. Is that better than Aliens Gold? Yes, much better. Everything's just the same old, same old, really, isn't it? And then, you know, best sellers are still Aliens and Batman and Cable and Ghost Rider. Why was Ghost Rider popular in the 90s?
0: Because I don't get it.
2: He looked edgy with his jacket and he... <laughs> he
0: looked edgy. Yeah. That's
2: why he was popular.
0: Yeah. Right, but of kids were in leather jackets and heads on fire. <laughs>
2: <laughs> don't do this at home. <laughs> I'm just going to say. Or if you're stupid enough. <laughs> if you're dumb enough to do that. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. No, seriously, don't do that at home. Don't. My- life Comics, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> life Comics have an advert, X-Men Adventures. They say you watch too much TV. They say you should read more. So read a comic that's based on a cartoon. Yeah, even flicking through this comic look at the adverts is painful. No, there's nothing else. Oh, I forgot to mention. In my excitement over covering Web of Spider-Man 100, I forgot to mention that Spawn has a backup. Uh, Nightwatch <laughs> has a backup strip. But given that it was also written by Terry Kavanagh, I couldn't bring myself to read it.
0: Oh, good, because neither could I.
2: That's excellent. Then. <laughs> All right, this is what we think of Web of Spider-Man 100. <laughs> <laughs>
0: there we go. That's the funniest thing I've ever seen do to a <laughs> comic.
2: I just hurled it across <laughs> the room. That's how little I care for web Feed of Spider-Man. It to the cats. 100. Yeah, a line cat litter. That's what. I'm... No, I'm keeping it because I like the cover. Oh, okay. Do you want to go bring it back? <laughs> oh no, no, it's coming. Yeah, oh, actually, don't leave it though. You might slip on it. Yeah, go on. <laughs> over the road at DC, the flagship character was starting to flag. The Dark Knight had stole his thunder in the movie theaters and in comic book sales over the course of the 90s. It's not that Superman wasn't churning out good comics in the 1990s, he was some of the best. The 90s started with Day of the Krypton Man, an excellent story, and followed it up with Dark Knight of Metropolis, Crisis of the Crimson Kryptonite, Time and Time Again, and Panic in the Sky, amongst others, that are some of the finest examples of superhero melodrama ever published. But it wasn't until he died in 1992 that the comics received the attention they deserved. Generally, The Whipping Boy for 90s Excess, The Death of Superman, Funeral for a Friend and Reign of the Supermen are actually some of the finest long-form comics ever published and were must-buys for people frequenting comic shops at the time. Yes, they had gimmick covers. Yes, the whole thing can be seen as a sales stunt, as if that's a crime. But these were compelling superhero comics. The problem was, though, how do you top that? It was a foregone conclusion that Superman would be back, somehow, but what followed felt like the creative types desperately trying to recapture lightning in a bottle, something that had effortlessly come to them in the Death Of story. Again, none of the super titles stunk. The fall of Metropolis, dead again, and the death of Clark Kent all had their moments, but if Superman was to regain the title, then what he needed was another huge event. And what better to attract the attention of the cynical John Q. Citizen than to take him out of his iconic red and blue outfit and change his look. Superman issue 123, cover dated May 1997, has a glow-in-the-dark cover, which, unlike a lot of cover enhancements, actually has some relevance to the story. See, Superman's new look is that of an energy being, and the suit he now wears, a blue body stocking with white piping down the arms and legs, and a large S on his chest, is to contain his essence. So the -the glow-in-the-dark enhancement actually works very well. I don't think this looks that bad, to be honest. It's a ton better than the spider armour and what we're looking at next. And yes, as Peter David has pointed out, it does make him look like a figure skater, but it's no stupider looking than any number of superhero costumes. It was pencilled and inked by Ron Friends and Joe Rubenstein, who also did the interior art. What do you think of the cover, Michael? You don't really get the full glow in the dark effect here, no. but if you rub your hands over it. Yeah. It's, have you already done yeah.
0: that? Yeah. I do like that outfit.
2: I don't mind it. I don't. I don't. I mean, it was quite clear from the beginning this was just another story. Yeah, they weren't going to leave him dressed like that. <laughs> but it's just nothing wrong with it, is there? No. I mean, for the purposes of the story that they're telling, and the glow in the dark cover actually fits. Yeah, I like it.
0: It's one of those outfits as well that it's cool. But when he came back to his regular outfit, it was really cool to see him back to normal again.
2: Oh, well, that's, that's why they do it, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, I like it. I like the glow. I like that it's very uncluttered.
0: Yeah, it was not much of a cover.
2: No, the, the, the whole gimmick of it is the glow-in-the-dark stuff. But uh, I think it's it's perfectly good. Mm-hmm. Perfectly good. Perfectly fine. I like that it's very minimalist. Yeah. Compared to the two Marvel ones, which are just busy and cluttered.
0: Well, the Spider-Man one's not, I guess. Got a lot of extra webs on it. It's just his webs.
2: Hmm. Yeah, alright, well, we've we've given that one a thumbs up. Yeah. This was triangle number nineteen from nineteen ninety seven. It was entitled Superman Reborn and it was written by Dan Jurgens. As Lois Lane races towards Superman, whose powers have started going wackadoodle, doodle the Man of Steel himself is blinking out of existence. His power fluctuations are affecting even his vision and as he tries to focus past the kaleidoscope of colours, his vision clears long enough to get punched into an electric billboard by a blue-horned devil. Absorbing the electrical energy somehow charges Superman and a fierce blast of energy rips through the blue devil and blasts him into Hobb's Bay, Superman, perplexed by this new power, determines to find help as he becomes more and more incorporeal. as Lex ponders whether to aid Superman or let him suffer over at Star Labs, Kitty Faulkner and Professor Hamilton are trying the former. Caged in a containment chamber, Superman is warned that it will cease to exist within the hour and nothing can be done. As Lois cries, the Contessa arrives from LexCorp with the fabric she claims will aid the man of tomorrow. Hamilton is dubious, but as he will die without it, Lois urges him to use it. Using some Kryptonian tech and fashioning it into the fabric, a suit is created and, just in the nick of time, Superman dons the new costume. It allows him to remain in phase with this plane of existence and zooms off after the monster from earlier. Superman is unable to find him, so instead he decides to goof off for a bit with his new powers and he zooms on over to Mara Kent to show off a bit. Elsewhere, the monster named Scorn takes a man to the ER, having inadvertently caused him to have a heart attack feared by the populace he looks for aid and finds it in a discarded newspaper a bio photo of Clark Kent ooh cliffhanger ended. as was the case with the Superman titles of this era there isn't a plain break in the story to make it easy to trade paper back later being the start of a new plot this issue carries on from the last issue but it was never confusing mm. you were never wondering what the hell was going on page three I was always very impressed by how knowledgeable bystanders are in the Marvel and DC universe. Here we get Jimmy Olsen who manages to explain quite coherently what exactly is happening to Superman. Despite Jimmy not having any kind of scientific background that I can determine, (laughs) but I was more impressed by his cameraman who was able to diagnose what was going on as well. (laughs) The the citizens of Metropolis are very smart. They took a lot of science lessons in Metropolis.
0: Or they paid a lot of attention to Professor Hamilton. (laughs) Yeah, when Professor
2: Hamilton speaks, they listen. Yeah, Excellent. Good, yeah, all right, fair enough, I'll I'll go with that. I very much liked page four, where Superman doesn't know what the hell's going on and has to try and make sense of his vision, only to have it come clear just in time for him to get punched in the face.
1: Hmm.
2: (laughs) Which amused me. That being said... And a lot of comics artists make this mistake, if you pay attention to it. The angle that he's punched at, and the angle that he flies in, are completely different. The way the blue devil, though, has punched him, not the superhero blue devil, but this this guy. The way that guy's punched him and he's flipped back over himself, he's then just going to go in like a horizontal line with the ground and then smash into it. He's not going to fly straight upwards. That would have had to have been a punch upwards, wouldn't it? So the punch, though, doesn't make any sense. Okay. With what happens in the uh,
0: and that's, that is your only problem with this issue.
2: Pretty much, <laughs> yeah, I come come clean. After Web of Spider-Man 100, <laughs> dude, this was a masterpiece. <laughs> Let's be brutally honest. The other problem I have, I'd say I had a couple of problems. Fair. Did Scorn really get his name from Jimmy mishearing what bibo said? Because that's a little bit lame.
0: I guess, but. It's no lamer than the S standing for hope. <laughs> I'll be honest, that's kind of
2: lame. What if I call you Superman? Oh no, she gets interrupted, do not yeah. it? Yeah. You know, can't I call him Superman. He's
0: not, no, he's not Superman, he's dark.
2: Is he Hope-man? Y- yes, yeah. Duff-man. Not being overly familiar with the Superman in this time period. I've read a little bit of it, but not a lot of it. Uh, I can't say who the Contessa is and why she's married to Lex Luthor. And exactly what's in it for Lex to help Superman, I presume, is a a plot point that will be picked up later down the road. Lois herself points out that he must have an angle. I do have all these issues, and I'm planning on reading them all when from Crisis to Crisis gets them. But uh, I've only read them bits, I've read issues here and there, I haven't read the whole thing. You've not read the whole thing either, have you? No. So, So we don't know how all this turns out. He could die. Yeah, you know. yeah he <laughs> Well, they rebooted it now, so it doesn't really matter if he does, does he? likewise, I've got no idea how Professor Hamilton ended up with Keelex, but it's pretty good that he did have him.
0: Yeah, he just looked like the the robot in Fantastic Four.
2: Herbie. Yeah,
0: he looked like Herbie.
2: <laughs> I think that was intentional. I think it's he's perfect. I think he's supposed to look like Herbie. Superman just giving up the search for the Blue Devil off. Yeah, and then buggering off to mum and dad I think it was cute but I kind of thought Superman would have looked for this this potential danger to the citizens of Metropolis for a lot longer than he actually did. Yeah, He kind of flies up and he goes, oh right, he's not here I know, I'm going to go home and show me <laughs> mum my new costume and To be honest, I
0: thought the, the last bit of the issue was a bit of a letdown for up until that, it was all this tense build up of what's going to happen to Superman, what is happening to him, what's going on. And then he just goes. He just goes home and says, hey, check out my new costume. Yeah,
2: I, I thought that exact thing. And Martha thing. and Jonathan
0: just don't seem bothered. so All no, oh, right, okay, you're I blue have, now. I
2: am exactly that same. No, he just seemed to take all this in stride, didn't he? Yeah. Oh, I nearly became a non-corporeal being. <laughs> well, that's all right. And I nearly phased out of existence. Ah, I do that six times before <laughs> breakfast. And now I've got these natty electrical powers and this cool new blue suit. Hey, gift! <laughs> the girls are going to love me now. Look at the package. And it's like, he just... Yeah, he got over all this really quickly.
0: Yeah, I mean, at least he can do a cool Tron. Doctor's <laughs> zigzags. A flash. Yeah. As he
2: takes off. I like the last double page spread of Superman flying back because it harkens back to the last page of, uh, of Man of Steel number one. And then, of course, we get the, the epilogue, which takes us into the next storyline. Uh, the electric blue Superman story gets an awful lot of flack. ...from the online comics community... ...but I have to confess... i am not read it all... ...as I've said... ...but I didn't think this was this bad... Mm. ...I honestly thought this was... ...solid... ...entertaining... ...enjoyable comic... ...like we say... compared to Web of Spider-Man 100... ...this was Watchmen...
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: ...wouldn't it? It's certainly no sillier... ...than any number of other... ...comic stories of the time... ...it's solid... ...it's not exceptional... ...but it's a solid... ...superhero action piece... ...it's very plot heavy... ...continuing the plot thread... ...of Superman's power fluctuations... ...from the last issue... And it can be argued that it is once again the beginning of a story rather than a story in and of itself. Not a great deal actually happens if you analyse this story in the cool light of day, but it's a continuing plotline designed to run through all of the Superman titles for the next year. This isn't just a six-issue story for the trade. Yeah. This this story went on for longer than the death of Superman. Mm. So, because I, I looked it up on Mike's Amazing World, it's you know it does it admirably. It mm-hmm. sets up its plots, I there are numerous questions raised about the nature of his new powers, what's in it for Lex, who is scorned, but the crux of the issue is Superman's plight. You know, it's all going to come back and bite him in his Kryptonian buns later on, Yeah. but for the moment he seems to be enjoying it. The art by Ron Friends is light years away from what we think of as 90s art, but it's clear and crisp and it tells the story. It's not great but there's enough going on here to make me want to check out where it goes from here. And I certainly didn't have the overwhelming feeling of apathy I had after reading Web of Spider-Man 100. (laughs) I wouldn't be tossing this across the room. Mm. I'd actually be... That's worth more. Well, possibly. No, I got this in the 50p bin as well. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, this was actually a good read. Yeah. I enjoyed reading it. What did you think of it?
0: No, I enjoyed it apart from the ending. Then, from... What I read of the Blue Superman, I enjoyed all of it, um, especially the Stuart Eminem issues.
2: Alright, does so he come on as regular pencil at this time? Yeah. Right. I like Stuart Eminem.
0: But yeah, I liked it. I didn't think it was bad. Just the ending let it down a bit.
2: Well, maybe the ending was just there to. Because this wasn't trade waiting, was it? The ending was yeah. just there to give this comic an ending. Yeah. But hopefully get you to pick up the next issue.
0: It just felt like a very rushed and
2: unsatisfying
0: ending to what was a build up issue
2: fair enough I didn't have that same problem but I I get what you're saying okay Um, there's not a lot of cool adverts in it there's massive chiselled ripped legends of the Dark Knight premium collecting series figures you had a couple of them didn't you I did yeah did you have that red Batman
0: no I had a similar one to it I had one similar to that purple one where you had massive bat wings
2: and you had a silver 100th or 200th one didn't you yeah Well, there's no hot comics 64 is that what it was Oh, oh sorry, yeah, Doom sixty four, the yeah. computer game. Which we caught did we like did we have that one?
0: We had it on PlayStation. Right.
2: I like Doom. I like playing Doom.
0: I like Doom. It might have messed me up playing on it that young, but <laughs> too late for me to worry about that eh. Yeah. I've not shot anyone yet.
2: <laughs> Still time. <tan. laughs> um yeah, there's no hot comics adverts. They're all adverts for chocolate bars and computer games.
0: What are they saying about the readership? What are they
2: saying about the readership? Yeah, and um, Star Wars gets um, a two-player forces-in-your-hands collectible card game, which looked quite cool, but I've never had any of them. I was kind of out of the game a little bit at this point, because you'd arrived and your brother was on his way. So none of this stuff is uh, is ringing any bells with me. Hershey's Cookies mm-hmm. is uh, is the... So that one gets a thumbs up then? Yes. Okay, fair enough. So we've seen Superman and Spider-Man changing their look. Changing their image, man. Changing how people perceive them. How about popping back over to the Fantastic Four and seeing what they were up to, eh? The FF, it's fair to say, were in a slump in the 1990s and there wasn't a gimmick the book didn't try in an effort to boost sales. There were deaths, changes to the status quo, and lots of enhanced covers. This one is a holographic cover and it adorns Fantastic Four issue 375, cover dated April 1993. To emphasise the changing look of the team, to make them edgier, they all wear leather jackets over their traditional uniforms because, hey, why the hell not? They have pouches, of course they do. The FF are all carrying huge guns as well, because, well, 90s. Also on the cover, Elijah, a Skrull who years earlier had impersonated Alicia Masters in order to get closer to the Fantastic Four, going as far to marry Johnny. That's how they retconned Johnny's marriage with Alicia. She was a Skrull. Okay. Bendis would take that to its logical conclusion many years later when he said, everyone's a Skrull. (laughs) Fair enough. Sharon Ventura is also on the cover with them. She has her own gun. Liger doesn't need one. She's far too cool. The cover is ridiculous for a number of reasons. One, Johnny's flamed on cool jacket is just very amusing to me. It screams trying too hard. Yeah. doesn't it? As does the condescending tagline, this is not your parents' comics magazine. Michael, whose comic is this? Uh, yours. There you go. So I've just disproved it, well, I? Well, it's not your parents'. No, that's very true. Yeah, my parents <laughs> had good comics. Ooh, pithy. However, the single stupidest thing about this cover is what Sue Richards is wearing. Sue has apparently abandoned her standard Fantastic Four uniform and donned thigh-high white stockings and two garter belts at the top of each thigh. Bikini briefs hide her modesty but around her waist she wears a chunkier version of Adam West's utility belt from the 60s Batman TV show. Her top is missing a huge square in the belly section so that we can see quite plainly that having children hasn't ruined her toned stomach. And she has a number four cut out of her costume at chest level so her magnificent cleavage is exposed for all who to look. It's topped off by a big collar that would presumably chafe every time she turns her head. Now... I am firmly of the opinion that women are allowed to wear whatever they want to. But this probably wins the award for the most impractical female costume in comics. And given that this is the late 1990s, that's a hotly contested title. What do you think of that costume, Michael? There are no words, are there?
0: No, and I'm not really all that bothered about it because I know it
2: goes away. It's like somebody thought MILFs were hot in the 1990s. Cause, uh, 'Cause you had Stacy's mom as well, then you had that yeah. song Stacy's mom. Was that ninety so seven? Was that, was that ninety seven was it earlier? Uh, was it later? This, come this was ninety, I've already said, haven't I? This was nineteen
0: oh, ninety three. Franklin's
2: Mom has got it going on. That's what you're thinking when you're looking at that. And she's got very muscular thighs, I'll say that for her. But it's it's just it's like the thought process. MILFs are hot. <laughs> Who do we have in the Marvel universe who's a MILF? Sue Richards. What's the least dramatic clothes we can put on? What, what I'm still having a four. <laughs> it's it's. Yeah, uh, I mean the cover as a whole is basically every single nineties cliche put onto one cover. Hmm. But it doesn't help that the prismatic hologram cover is really quite overbearing, isn't it?
0: I don't know. I quite like it to be honest. Yeah, I quite, quite like that, that. They're not holographic,
2: but the background is. Yeah. Okay, see, I found it a bit overbearing, but alright, okay, if that's what you want. The corner box is still the Burn corner box from Burn's Run on the Boot, which was nice, I suppose. But uh, it's also the 375th anniversary of the Fantastic Four, which it isn't, because 375 isn't an anniversary of anything, except the fact that there have been 375 issues. Well, yeah. Well, I suppose 375 is a big deal nowadays,
1: yeah.
0: Well, we get
2: to issue 20 and they go, oh, I'll relaunch of the new number one.
0: Maybe get into, I don't know, 700?
2: <laughs> Would have been very impressive. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's always darkest before the doom. Was plotted, scripted and drawn by Tom DeFalco, Paul Ryan and Danny Bolanade. Escaping from the secret defenders thanks to the Watcher, the FF plus Sharon and Lijah are beamed aboard the Watcher's Citadel on the moon. The Watcher tells them that Doctor Doom is loose in the Citadel, having stolen the power cosmic again, this time from a rogue Watcher. The Watcher claims that whilst he is forbidden to interfere in Earth history, he can defend himself and has summoned the FF to do just that. He then disappears in a puff of logic. As Doom sets forth a series of robots to distract the Fantastic Four, the Inhumans currently living on the moon arrive to see what's occurring. The Thing is attacked by a robot that pounds on his face, heavily scarred thanks to an altercation with Wolverine, but the Thing manages to emerge victorious. His face is sore under liability, so he uses the helmet off an old statue of the Fantastic Four that the Watcher has to protect it. Doom makes his move, easily vanquishing the Human Torch and even the Invisible Woman, so Reed tinkers with some of the Watcher's weaponry to enhance and channel their power. The thing objects to being turned into the Punisher as a mere sales gimmick, but is quite happy with the results when his huge gun blasts Dr. Doom clear across the room. Doom still emerges victorious, for he is Doom, but Reed has one last trick in his pouches. If Black Bolt shouts into the weapons, the amplified strength of his already prodigious power will trigger a disturbance of cataclysmic proportions. Doom simply absorbs the power, but it proves too much for him and builds and builds until he explodes. The Watcher arrives back as it's all over and displeased with the mess the FF has made of his home he sends them all back to Earth. In Latveria, of course, Doom isn't dead for Doom plans for every eventuality for Doom knows that one day Doom will emerge triumphant. Well, that was quite complicated, that one. I need a drink. Tom DeFalco had had uh, quite a nice line in sardonic wit in his stories and this is no exception. Sue, so, in relation to why the Watcher brought the Fantastic Four here, asks isn't he a fan of the X-Men like everyone else? Mm. Which I laughed at. I at that. yeah. That was, that was good, I liked that. I thought that was music uh, reads line, Doom, with the power of a Watcher, it's almost too horrible to imagine. Totally works if you read it as Adam West delivering it. Okay, <laughs> Did it? That is such an Adam West line of dialogue. Oh, that was great. Speaking of Reed, why does Reed have his belt on over his coat? To stop
0: his coat from flailing about. Why don't you just fasten it? Because then you can't see his four. <laughs> I and mean, then he can't reach his belt. And then they can't sell action figures. Alright,
2: oh, fair enough, how stupid of me. <laughs> Uh, basically, the Watcher summons the Fantastic Four for the moon just to leave them there Yeah. and the, deal with Doctor Doom.
0: The Watcher can't interfere with human history, but he can make humans interfere with well, human history. I
2: loved his explanation. I am allowed to defend myself by, by <laughs> importing the Fantastic Four from Earth to here and leaving them to defend <laughs> me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that's not defending yourself, dude.
0: Well, if he didn't use them to defend himself. We'd have got an original sin much earlier.
2: We, that's, that's very true. Yeah, all right. Fair enough. Um, blurting out, Oh my God! Your face! <laughs> when confronted with Ben's scars really wouldn't do wonders for his self-esteem. Yeah. Nice panel of his scarred face, though.
0: I thought it was quite... Green. Yeah. Way way great, hair, yeah, way, very good.
2: Yeah, I like what you did there. Yeah, I thought that as well. I thought I can understand why he'd be a bit miffed by that.
0: The Hulk beating the crap out of him just doesn't do anything, but but Wolverine's adamantium claws,
2: yeah,
0: that kind of upset. Hey, what happens when the Thing gets a slipped disc?
2: <laughs> <laughs> you amused yourself by having it. It's proper and correct that the page with the most dialogue on it so far is the two pages where Dr. Doom carries on an entire conversation with himself. Yeah. <laughs> Best two pages in the book
0: not so big in his new costume to be honest no
2: no I don't like his new costume it just looks like you know what that looks like speaking of Ties it looks like the Secret Wars doll right that they made of him the Secret Wars action figure but I love those two pages of Doctor Doom just monologuing <laughs> Absolutely brilliant as well. For his new uh, cassette. Yeah, and, and he talks about himself in the third person. Yeah. Which Doctor Doom always needs to do. I love it. Soon this entire citadel and all of its awesome artefacts will belong to Doctor Doom. To think that I once dreamed of becoming the mere master of Earth, now my ambitions are far greater, more cosmic in scope. He's brilliant, isn't he? <laughs> I love Doom.
0: Who would win the fight between Doctor Doom and Thanos?
2: They just talk each other to (laughs) death, wouldn't they? (laughs) You can just imagine those two play chess together. Yeah. That's what, they don't fight with each other. Cosmic chess. chess. Cosmic chess with each other. Absolutely. Absolutely brilliant. Um, You may be wondering how Gorgon can generate a sound wave sufficient to shatter the walls around the Watcher's Citadel on the moon, and how indeed the Inhumans seem to be talking and breathing just fine. Mm -hmm. Well, that's because the Watcher's Citadel is in the blue area of the moon where there is Earth and an atmosphere. Did they not teach you this in school?
0: Actually, I think I didn't know that because of Avengers vs X-Men.
2: Mm, the blue area of the moon. Would have saved an awful lot of trouble if the NASA astronauts had known that was that. Yeah. <laughs> Avoid the dark side. Yeah. Aim for the bit that's... Blue. <laughs> Aim for the blue area of the moon. You'll be <laughs> laughing. <laughs> they'll be like, okay. Uh, the scarring on Ben's face from Wolverine, as Michael and I have already mentioned, is pretty shocking and very well depicted by Paul Ryan. I presume it's not intentional... But it does look like Ben's brains are exposed as well.
1: Yeah,
0: do you know what I
2: think, or is that just me?
0: I don't know. It could it's just a be Something me. mushy.
2: Something mushy.
0: Just later on, when he says he can feel it all puffing up and falling out in his helmet, does yeah. that mean he, he's falling out of his? It,
2: it is a bit gross.
0: Yeah, in many ways.
2: Page sixteen, the Watcher has a, a doll or a statue of Superman. Yes, and that's a big action figure of Superman up there. Paul Ryan's Human Torch is very reminiscent of John Byrne. In fact, that entire page seventeen could be a Byrne page, couldn't it? Mm. That's he studied at the feet of Mister Byrne. Though it was alright. It's popular internet groupthink to criticise this year of having Ben wear the helmet, claiming that well, I mean, he'd be bothered about some scaring. Well, for one. The helmet was a Lee Kirby invention, it was worn by Ben in the early days, so all DeFalco is doing here is bringing it back. However, the reason stated in the story, which I presume the internet hive mind have never actually read, is that the scarring on Ben's face is so severe a foe can take advantage of it, which the robot is seen here to do. Ben decides to don the helmet, which I grant you is very conveniently located on the moon, and stop bad guys from using this disadvantage against him. In context, mm-hmm. it makes sense. Yeah. So everyone who bitches about this on the internet, I do wonder if they ever actually read the issue where DeFalco does actually give a reason for him wearing the helmet. You may not like the reason, mm. but just say, well, does Ben wear the helmet? Read the comic, dude.
0: Not quite like the reason, just not so fond of the helmet.
2: Well, he originally wore the helmet in the early days of the FF and then he just gave up. Yeah. For obvious reasons. But it it kind of made sense, if you're saying that it is gooping around, the scar and he's bleeding, for want of a better word. Yeah. It does make sense that he's covering it up. I That's, guess. Or it did to me.
0: She did not hold it into place, probably. You'd,
2: you'd think Reed would care a little bit more about his best friend. Yeah, he
0: instead he's just endangering his wife.
2: Yeah. Well, alright, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, Elijah criticises the Human Torch bad dialogue but leaves Doctor Doom unchallenged. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, who says stuff like it is pointless to belabor your dreary ills? It kind of works on Doctor Doom. It works when Doctor Doom says it. It totally does. Again, as with Superman of this era, I've not read a great deal of the Fantastic Four here. I kind of drifted away when Walt Simonson left. But is there an in-story reason for why Sue Richards has been so obnoxious? Everything Reed says is wrong. Time of the month. <laughs> I'm wearing that costume as well. <laughs> Water attention, dude. She's argumentative for no reason. She's actually downright unpleasant, isn't she? Yeah. It's a good job she fills that outfit
0: out well. But so is Franklin, to be honest. Well yeah,
2: well Franklin Franklin's quite severe. In that he, he does he kill Agatha like this?
0: Uh I, I think it's suggested until Thingy shows up and says, nah, she's alright. Yeah.
2: Well, Franklin's age in this confused me as well. I remembered him being depowered and then powered up again. So the fact that he's repowered like to the max here was a bit of a, a surprise. But it does demonstrate the problem that you have when you give characters that don't age a child. If we assume that Reed was celebrating his 40th birthday when Byrne was on the book, which Byrne has said that's what it was, even though, quite wisely, they didn't give an age. Then Franklin was born when Reed was about 35, 36 years of age. Mm. But this Franklin seems younger than the Franklin who was in the Burn issues. He's certainly a lot younger than the one that's in current comics. Yeah. So what is Reed now, then? 47?
0: Yeah. right, okay.
2: So you live with him still being in his late 40s.
0: Well, he's younger than that, though, isn't
2: he? Yeah. So, you see what I mean? Yeah. Timeline confusion once again again DeFalco provides an in story explanation for why the FF have the weaponry and the jackets apparently he's done something so that they amplify the Fantastic Four's powers it makes no sense mm-hmm. but at least he's trying to give a reason for why they're in these things Johnny even mocks them yeah Johnny takes the pace so that's fair enough the final battle is as frenetic as any 90s confrontation but crucially Paul Ryan keeps it all very clean and easy to follow. There's a number of subplots about Franklin being very overpowered and the FF having to deal with the Human Torch destroying half of ESU. But the main storyline gets wrapped up in this issue. Mm. So it was all done quite easily. Uh, a ninety staple was the idea of throwing in a ton of characters for no discernible reason. We saw this in Web of Spider-Man 100. And we see it here, in addition to the Fantastic Four and assorted hangers-on. There's the Secret Defenders, which are Doctor Strange, Spider-Man, Ghost Rider, Hulk and Wolverine. Five members of the Attilan Royal Family. The Watcher, Doctor Doom, Matt Murdoch, Agatha Harkness and Nathaniel Richards. And yeah, I quite enjoyed this. I didn't think this was at all bad. Peering around the internet, once again, the group think is that the DeFalco run was one of 90s excess. ...with no redeeming qualities... ...but this issue was... ...it was entertaining... ...at the very least... ...it was an entertaining read... ...Defalco mocks the very 90s tropes... ...that he's including in the story... ...and whilst it's quite packed... ...it's easily understandable... ...despite obviously following on from previous developments... ...there's no real need for this many characters... ...but Defalco moves the more unnecessary ones... ...off the page pretty sharpish... ...and unlike with Web of 100... ...he never forgets that this is an issue... ...of the Fantastic Four... The character conflicts are at the heart of the issue and are compelling. What's going on with Franklin? What's the matter with Sue? Is Ben going to stomp all over Wolverine's head for what he's done to his face? All clear questions with a good narrative drive. None of this vaguely sketched out character backstory in lieu of real plotting. Paul Ryan's art is clean and easy to follow, seemingly a disciple of Byrne rather than Liffield, and all told, I didn't think this was anywhere near as bad as you may have read. I suppose the moral here is if you actually read some of this stuff, it's not as bad as the loud chorus of internet voices would have it. Unless it was just after Web of Spider-Man 100, (laughs) this was another masterpiece. What did you think of it?
0: I wasn't sure, to be honest, because I didn't think it was all that good, but there were bits in it that I did
2: like. I just... So there was nuggets of characterisation that was good.
0: I I couldn't decide if I did like it or didn't like it.
2: Right. I thought it was alright. I thought it was perfectly serviceable. Yeah. Very enjoyable. I mean, it's very much a 90s comic.
0: Yeah, but I didn't have to make myself read it, though unlike of Spider-Man yeah.
2: 100 oh man you didn't have to synopsize that <laughs> going through the synopsis I was like I cannot be bothered
0: can so, you not know, have just synopsised it to there's a fight Spider-Man makes
2: out there's don't a know. fight there's Spider-Man fight. makes But there's another fight Spider-Man don't care what's going yeah, on to I'm me to useless. the be <laughs> yeah so he never uses it again, and it is never mentioned is again. There, is
0: there a Verian uh, embossed <laughs> cover where the armor
2: falls off? Where the armor melts away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right, first, so they were, you know, two good ones and a piece of utter Tribe. <laughs> yeah. So you know there are gold in those the nineties. <laughs> Next time on a new episode of Hate Kids Comics, get off that ledge, you'll get vertigo. Uh-huh. Ah, I see what I did there. Yeah, next week we're looking at Vertigo and what it did to the comics industry. If it did anything, I don't know. And if you think this is just an excuse for us to cover Preacher, you'd be right. <laughs> see you next week. Goodbye. used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only and no infringement is intended so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show is not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at 2TrueFreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the 2 True Freaks internet radio network and we can be emailed directly at HeyKidsComics at VirginMedia.com We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.